Welcome to the Mind on My Money podcast, presented by Pinnacle Trust, hosted by Neil McCready and Martin Palomo. This show usually tackles topics related to personal finance, but today we're tackling a serious, tough topic. Stay tuned to the end because you'll hear something that will save your life or the life of someone you love. Now here are our hosts, Neil McCready and Martin Palomo. Welcome into another edition of Mind on My Money podcast presented by Pinnacle Trust. I'm Neil McCready. We're taping this here on a Saturday morning. Hope everyone out there is safe and your hands are clean and you are uh, safely locked into your homes as we uh, continue day, whatever this is of uh, lockdown, COVID, pandemic, a time in our lives that we'll probably never forget. Martin Palomo is uh, with me as well as always and uh, Dr. Alan Jones the uh, Chief of Emergency Medicine at UMMC is kind enough to be with us this morning as well. Uh, we had Alan on, I guess, about, I don't know, 10 days ago it or was, so. It was actually, it was like right at two weeks ago today, I think, because I think we've been so, on lockdown for 14 days since March. March began in uh, <laughs> 1916. Yes, it did. <laughs> and uh, we are almost through March. I think March ends in another 12 years. And then uh, and then we will get into <laughs> what I believe will be the longest April in the history of all Aprils. We'll, we'll start April in 1776. Yeah, just we'll just do a, a March on April. So uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Well, first, let me tell you, I'm coming to you from the Clark Ford Studios. Clark Ford's in Amory, Mississippi, 662-257-1900. They're open. All you got to do is give them a call. Next time you're in the market for a vehicle, the next time you just want a quote on a vehicle, you want to get an idea of, of what uh, you're looking at, call Corey Clark and the people at Clark Ford. Tell them what you're looking for, what you're interested in. Here's what happens. They, they're going to send you a right-to-the-bottom-line quote within 15 minutes in business hours. It's that simple. No big deal right to the bottom line is not going to try to haggle you. They're not going to try to mess with you. They're not going to see if you're a good negotiator or not. That's not how they do it. They like to be very efficient. So they give you a bottom line deal and you can take that. You can use it as a uh, launching pad shopping elsewhere. It's cool with them. You ate up less than 15 minutes of their time. They'll be all right. Or you can do what I've done three times now. And that's, Oh, it's pretty good. And you end up hopping in a Clark Ford. <coughs> You'll love the service after the sale. You'll love um, you'll love everything about it. You'll love the vehicle, of course. It's 662-257-1900. Hey, Neil. Uh, sorry, man. Thanks for having me back on. I accidentally muted us, and I unmuted us. Sorry, man. <laughs> it's a, a technical glitch for me. Um, man, uh, happy to be back on. Uh, it seems like just yesterday... We had um, Dr. Alan Jones on with us and, you know, kind of really started talking to us initially about what to expect um, from from COVID-19 in Mississippi. And, uh, man, he put uh, a little bit of a fire under me. I came home immediately from that and, you know, locked my house down because I have, you know, uh, I have a mother here that's in her early 70s. She's got two uh, medical issues that would keep her. Um, in that high risk category. And so we have been on lockdown and it, you're right, man, it seems like March has lasted forever. Um, but Pinnacle is still uh, open and serving clients. Uh, we are mostly doing that remotely. Um, we've been using video conference and technology and phone calls um, to, you know, communicate with our clients. Uh, we've, you know, business is kind of going on 
as usual with regards to we still have to be there every day for clients that need money or making trades or doing those things. So um, this has been a really, really busy time for us with just regards to uh, the markets are moving at breakneck speeds. So, you know, not only are me, Reed, and Maeve uh, every day looking at portfolios and, you know, making <clears throat> decisions if we need to adjust uh, on the fly to help protect client assets, but we are also making the phone calls as well. So uh, it feels like we've been working, you know, 30 days every week, uh, but I do like your, I like your, uh, your explanation a whole lot better, Neil, where it feels like, you know, <laughs> that March started in 1962 or <laughs> wherever you said. Um, but, you know, one of the things we've tried to stay on top of and we've leveraged technology to do that is is communicating to clients. Um, and this is probably the time in, you know, in, in, this, in this period where our clients need the most communication, even if it's just a little bit of comfort. And so, you know, a lot of folks that are doing it themselves are not getting communication from their advisor because – they are their advisor. Uh, or if you know, you've got, if there's folks that you haven't heard a word from your advisor or they haven't sent you updates or anything like that, um, you know, give us a call, uh, 601-957-0323. If you want to use the old fashioned, uh, landline, um, since we are working remotely as well, uh, email is a great way to get us. Uh, you can get us at info at P I N N trust.com. Uh, as well as you can catch us, um, you know, online. We're really active on Facebook uh, and Twitter. Uh, you can find us on Facebook um, at Pinnacle Trust, or you can get us through the Mind on My Money podcast. Either one, I answer both of those. Um, and then our Twitter handle is at Pinnacle underscore Trust. Uh, you can you can communicate with us there as well. Dr. Jones, welcome into the show. Really appreciate you spending some time with us. How are you? Of course, I'm doing well. Thanks. So the last time we talked to you was about two weeks ago. How much has uh, how much has this pandemic changed in uh, in two weeks from in from what you've seen, what you're experiencing every day there in the in the medical community? Yeah, so uh, we've been on a pretty steep uh, upward trajectory in terms of the number of cases that we've seen uh, and the number of suspected cases that we've seen. So I think about two weeks ago, Mississippi maybe had uh, one or two reported cases. I, I can't remember. Things kind of blur the last two weeks. Maybe even when I talked to you guys last, we had not even had a, a single reported case yet. But, uh, you know, now as of uh, yesterday morning, we were just shy of 200 cases in the state and, um, and only having uh, tested a pretty small portion of uh, people that potentially could have it. Only about 3,000 tests have been done. So, you know, if you think about that, that's about a 20% rate of uh, positive based on the number of cases. So we did a little modeling at UMC, and it looks like we're on the same trajectory as the rest of the U.S. is in terms of our ramp up um, with COVID-19. So all in all, what we feared is coming true, that uh, it, it is not the case that Mississippi is going to avoid this. I don't think anyone's going to avoid it, right? I mean, maybe, maybe some of the parts in the 
I've seen where my, like maybe North Dakota and Montana and some West of those. Virginia, yeah. yeah. Well, there's some crazy theories about West Virginia. I might even throw it at uh, Dr. Jones in a minute. But awesome. Like those th- those areas that that are really uh, you know people aren't around. People are farmers and ranchers, and they're not really around other people that much. But 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 anywhere where there's population centers, it's it's hitting it pretty hard. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think that because we're a couple weeks behind, um, probably two to three weeks behind some of these areas that have higher density of population, there were some theories that, oh, we may dodge the bullet. And what we're starting to see now is the disease kind of started, if you think about it, it kind of started on the periphery of the United States and areas where there is a lot of uh, travel from other countries, you know, Seattle, uh, California, New York, Boston, New Jersey, Florida. So those areas that are, you know, on the periphery. And uh, now we're starting to see it move into Central America, uh, meaning the central United States. And it just has taken it a couple weeks. Uh, And I think one of the things we have going against us is uh, that, People, because we're a couple of weeks behind, it gave people a sense of, okay, well, this, you know, this isn't going to be so bad. It's really bad in some of these areas like New York and New Orleans, but yep. it's not going to be so bad here. But I think that's not the right mindset. Um, it, you know, I said it before and I'll say it again. I really think that a tidal wave, we're staring at it and people just don't have a good sense of, uh, of that at this point. Man, so the tidal wave um, images is pretty uh pretty frightening and you know one of the things that i saw i well i say i saw i read it i did see it i read it with my eyes um yesterday and i want to ask you and 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 i want i kind of want to ask you how this feeds into the cases you guys have, have seen as well alan is uh so i saw this uh story that i can't remember the source um neil you probably saw it too and you can probably uh, tell me what the source was, but they had tracked. Um, so, spring break two weeks ago, uh, they just looked at cell phone signals that were on the beaches, and then all they did, they did. It was anonymous on whose phone it was, but they just tracked the phones over the next two weeks on where they went, and it was insane how there was everywhere. this. Yeah, it was everywhere. It was, and I mean, and it was all in Mississippi. It was in Louisiana, Arkansas, Alabama, Georgia. I mean, it was everywhere. It wasn't Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras was the exact same thing. Yeah. So that's the the question yeah. I wanted to ask, Alan. Is I know that there's you know a lot of folks are saying, you know, this is um really it's the older folks that are coming into, you know, having to come into the hospital. But are are you seeing that there are a lot of younger folks that are that are coming in and and really you know getting hurt by this by this virus yeah so um we're seeing a fair amount of activity in uh you know the age group above 18 really pretty it it really is pretty minimal activity in children not to say that they don't get it but it's just not for for not clear reasons uh it's not hitting that age group. I mean, they're, they're really not even contracting. And if they are contracting it, they have very, very mild symptoms that don't even, you know, don't even appear to be the viral syndrome that is COVID-19. Uh, but we're seeing a fair amount of activity in the 18 to 
18 to 29 age group um, and on up. So it's not that it is sparing any adult population. Now, I will say that the younger age groups don't seem to have as severe a disease or as many deaths. I mean, it's really affecting uh, in a more meaningful way the older age groups, but uh, they're still, you know, the younger age groups are still contracting it. I'll ask this, and I know it's conspiratorial. We're going to get to some <laughs> the questions, but I, I've talked to some people in, in high places who are not con completely convinced that this was not a uh, biologically generated disease that was, or virus, I should say, that was sort of designed to to kill older people and, and not affect young people. Is that even possible? Could anyone... Could anyone put a virus together that would that would do something like that? Um, I would say that based on what we know about virology and human physiology, it is, I mean, of course, I'm never going to say nothing is impossible, but it is nearly impossible to create a virus that would preferentially target an older population. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And I have, I have a kind of, I have a, I have a, I'm going to get super personal. I'll, of course, people can deduct, um, <laughs> that know me and Alan, cause so my oldest daughter, well, hell, I just told it. Never mind. So my oldest daughter went to, um, she was on spring break with her grandmother. They were in Gulf Shores came back um you know she said they didn't really leave much you know they didn't leave the they were at the wharf and they didn't really leave much the the uh resort and came back you know felt fine felt normal and of course uh so like six seven days later she gets sick spot and she's spiking 102 fever you know she had the dry cough she was with her mother um because i told her once she left the house because of my mom that she wasn't coming back to, to, um, to our house. And so she asked, uh, I mean, so I asked her, you know, how is she feeling? She kind of described it. And of course I'm talking to her mom and asking her, you know, would you going to take her to the pediatrician and get her tested? And of course they took her to the pediatrician and she didn't show all the symptoms. Um, and they couldn't diagnose it at first. They called it, they thought it was viral and then they said it might be bacterial. But so anyway, they finally diagnosed it. Um, you know, uh, about a week later as walking pneumonia. And so I've seen that on the backside of this thing, that pneumonia is what happens a lot on the, on the backside of, of the virus or is, is that a, and she never got tested. You know, we didn't, we didn't take her and, and she's, she's on the mend now and she's, you know, fever's gone. She's doing well. Um, but it just seemed, and it may have been coincidence, but it just seemed like, you know, she showed a lot of the symptoms, and then she ends up with with pneumonia on the backside. She's never had pneumonia before, and it might be just a coincidence. But is that what it is? It turned into is are you guys seeing a lot of like pneumonia cases at the backside of this? Is that what it turns into, and is that what's really causing a lot of people um, to have death and complications? Yes. So uh, the thing that this causes that gets people into trouble is a viral pneumonia. So viral pneumonia, you know, the typically when you think about pneumonia, it's bacterial pneumonia. 
so uh, you know you can treat that with antibiotics. That's the vast majority of, of the, the pneumonia that we see in adults. In kids, we do see some viral pneumonia from certain types of viruses that are seasonal and uh, and are circulating in the population year to year. Respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, is the common one that we see in kids, and it, yep. it can cause viral pneumonia. Okay. Um, influenza can cause viral pneumonia, and that's, uh, you know, when you get real sick from the flu and you end up in the hospital or in the ICU, it's from a viral pneumonia. So by the difference between the, what the general public think about pneumonia and viral pneumonia is the difference between a bacteria and a virus causing it. With a bacteria, we can give you antibiotics and usually treat that. With a virus, there is nothing we can give you that treats it. Therefore, the only way to deal with it is to support one's immune system through the process of fighting the virus and then getting through it. So what we are seeing with COVID-19 is it's causing pretty severe viral pneumonia in in uh, an older population. And that viral pneumonia is what's causing people to, to get really, really sick from it and end up in the ICU and end up dead. We're just not able to, uh, to support them through that phase where they need some sub ventilator support or um, fluid support or, you know, kidney support or something like that. We're not able to support them through that process, and their body's not able to eventually fight through it, and then they have what we call immune paralysis, or their immune system basically just shuts down, and, and that's what they die from. All right, Dr. Jones, we asked for some questions. We got some. They're, they're sort of all over the map here. Um, we'll just kind of attack them one by one, and, and uh, you, you kind of answered this a minute ago. Mary Catherine from Greenwood says, What's the number of positive tests in the 30 to 39 age range? Probably meaning what's kind of the percentage of, of positive tests that you see in that age range? Yes, yeah, so I think uh, if you want them, if you if you go on the Mississippi Department of Health website, they they have a breakdown of all the positives by county and then by age ranges and um, when symptoms started and various other things that are kind of, it's kind of cool to look through. Um, but essentially, probably about around uh, sixth of the cases, you know, so some somewhere around 15% of the cases or so we're seeing in um, in that age range of 30 to 39. Um, it's really pretty evenly spread if you just look at decades of life going from 20 years old up to above 70 um, that it's about 15% in each age range that we're seeing as positives. Now the positives don't necessarily mean they're super sick or they're in the hospital. Um, so it's affecting all adult age ranges in terms of at least contraction uh, of what we're testing about the same. Yeah. So, and I was, I was looking on the department of health website while you were saying that and you were, I mean, you, you nailed it. You were spot on. It was, it was right at, a sixth. Um, let me ask a question too. So some of these you've, you know, you've answered. Um, let me get to one that's Clayton. Uh, he's from Seattle. He asked, um, what are the chances of college football starting on time? 
Well, I think that depends on uh, it kind of depends on what our you know government yeah. officials uh, tell tell the public in terms of you know when they when they can come back out and you know I think you can look at it from two perspectives and I understand them both. Uh, you know, there's the there's the there's the medical and public health perspective of this, and then there's the the economic um, and societal perspective. And you know, there there's not necessarily uh, a right answer to any of this in my mind. Um, you know, you're going to have rational, reasonable uh, points on either side. However, if we truly want to get through this pandemic with the fewest number of deaths and the fewest and the, and the smallest possibility of overwhelming our healthcare system to the point where it can return to functioning the way we need it to, then my answer to the question is it's not going to start on time. And it may not even, we may not even have a football season next year. Uh, next fall. Wow. Um, and I know that's not, you know, easy for people to wrap their head around, but, you know, in areas that are just starting to see a ramp up, um, you know, we're probably still looking at if we have shelter in place, um, you know, restricted movement, closed restaurants and other uh, stores and um, social distancing, I think that we've, we're probably still looking at eight to 12 weeks worth of uh, pretty high activity. And the thing that I think it's hard to understand unless you've seen this firsthand from a medical perspective, it's not, it's not as if these people are really easy to pick out, you know, I mean, um, they don't all have fever. Uh, They may just have a mild dry cough. They may have a sore throat. They may have a sore throat and, um, you know, muscle aches, and we have to treat all of them that have these types of complaints as if they have it until we can rule the disease out with a definitive test. Now, testing is becoming more widespread available, but you still, the test takes 8 to 12 hours to run, and um, we have to treat these people as if they have it until the time at which we can say they don't. So really the only thing with this disease that's going to help keep it from spreading and having a mass peak that doesn't overwhelm the healthcare system is social distancing and kind of sheltering in place. Uh, And that's going to have to be prolonged. If people are allowed out too soon, then what you're going to see is the first part of the curve flatten and then make a huge jump spike up when people come out. So in order to be effective, it's going to have to be in place for, for a, a fairly long period of time. Uh-huh. Some models even suggest for Mississippi that it may be between 200 and 250 days. This is a sweet spot before you should release social distancing and uh, sheltering in place. So, I mean, that's, so, that's, uh, that's you all know, it's a long time. Yeah. And that would – and the intent in, in that whole thing is, again, to – to cause the smallest number of deaths and the and ease the burden on the healthcare system as much as possible, so it doesn't get overwhelmed and overrun 
Um, and, you know, there's some that argue, well, you know, we're just going to have to have some debt because our economy's got to get back to uh, thriving again. Well, you know, I mean, it's easy to say that, but when you start letting people out, people start getting sick and your friends who are 30 and 40 years old with no medical problems start dropping. And by dropping, I mean dying. Uh, it's going to freak people out. And, you know, people aren't going to be back to just, oh, you know, let's go to Chuck E. Cheese or, um, you know, let's go out to eat because they're going to be scared to death that they're going to be next. So regardless of whether we say we're back to normal, I think people's behavior is not going to go back to normal totally. It's going to take years for that to occur. And a little I'm, side note, I, and Neil, I'll let you jump in. I'm just going to make a little side note comment. Um, I did see that Abbott um, has has maybe they've got a test that gives you results within minutes versus hours. Have are you are you guys going to be getting? Um, you think you guys will get your hands on those as well? Yeah, we um, we put an order in for those tests as soon as the first day that it was available. So gotcha. those are. Uh, basically about 45 minute turnaround tests and they have some utility in areas like uh, you know an emergency department uh, ER where you're trying to decide do I need to hospitalize this patient or not if I hospitalize them do I need to put them on do I need to put them on isolation precautions or not Um, and as it becomes more widespread you know doctor's offices uh, and places like that will will be able to do it and at that point at that point, you know, we'll, we'll probably be in a more uh, what's called endemic phase of this where it's kind of circulating in the population and um, perhaps it's not causing as much damage because there's more herd immunity to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, but it's going to take a while to get there. I mean, obviously, everybody is wanting the, the test, so it's taking a little while to get out there. Right. That's That's part of one of the reasons I'm a little skeptical about college football, I'm not, I'm not saying it's not going to happen. I've talked to people in it who think it is going to happen. I've talked to people in it who think it's not. I've talked to people in it who think it's going to happen, but it's going to happen with the delayed start, maybe late September instead of early September. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Here's the thing. And you guys can tell me whether, especially you, Alan, you can tell me whether this is even conceivable you got to remember how many people are involved in a college football program. So you have 85 scholarship players, typically another 20 to 25 walk-on type players who are part of the team. You've got a coaching staff that's usually about 30 people. You have equipment staff. You have trainers. You have uh, medical people. You just, just it's, it's a 170-person it's a person operation. So multiply that times 100 and whatever programs there are in the country. Before they can get started, realistically, I think you would have to have a baseline of health. In other words, you'd have to know who on that team. You'd have to know that before you started your first practice, everybody was negative for coronavirus. So you have to test everyone. And I don't know how conceivable that is even to get that done. And then the other problem with football is, you just this is what Kirk Herbstreet was saying yesterday. You can't just show up after these guys have, have been out since March. So you're to March, April, May, and let's say June, where they can't get into a gym, they can't work out as a team, they can't have team activities. 
you can't in the middle of July say, all right, here we go. We're going to get started and we're going to be ready by September. That's not particularly realistic. I can see. And, and, and then once you get into the season, once you get into practice, what, what is your protocol if a player or a coach or a trainer or anyone suddenly tests positive? Now, do you have to retest everyone? Do you have to quarantine everyone for two weeks? That quarantine very likely wouldn't include athletic exercise. It wouldn't include football practice. I just, I think, I think it's a problematic thing, and I completely understand. Look, my income is based on it. I get it. Yeah, I understand why people are so emotional about this. When you, but when you get away from the emotion of it and you get to the practicality of it, it's. It's not, it's not that it's impossible, but it's hard. And then with college football, where people say, well, you know, we can play these games without fans. Auburn and Georgia can play each other at Jordan-Hare or Sanford Stadium, and you just leave the 85,000 people out. Okay, now you get into an optics thing in college sports. Now, maybe you can do this in pro sports, and it's a different thing. In college sports, you're going to get into an optics thing where you say, so wait a minute, let me make sure I got this right. These, these student athletes that aren't getting paid, and I know they're getting scholarships, but they're not getting paid. It's safe for them to play, but it's not safe for their families to come to the games and watch. And more importantly, it's not safe for the student bodies that they represent to come to the game and watch and support them. That's a weird optic that I don't personally think the NCAA and the academic type people who are uh, the people that make these decisions at large universities, it's an optic that I don't think they're going to be particularly comfortable with. Yeah, I, I think you make some good points. I think it's even more complex than that because in the, in the system you described with the teams and the you know all the ancillary staff associated with the teams and then you're testing everybody if you think about it all those people are coming to a central location from other places in the country right yep. so yep. so they all are are bringing in some different level of exposure and Important. a, a yep. test a, a test uh, of negative tells you at that moment that person does not have detectable virus. It doesn't mean they don't have virus in their system. So you would have to bring them in. You'd have to test them, see if they're negative, uh, let them sit there for 14 days to make sure they're not going to become symptomatic. And then uh, if you brought everybody into a closed system, allowed no movement at all, you know, quarantined them all, isolated them all for 14 days, and then said, okay, we tested everybody. Nobody has it. Nobody has symptoms at 14 days. We test them again. They don't have it. Okay, we're comfortable. Nobody has it. We're going to start practicing. It has to be a closed system at that point. You can't go home to your family. You can't go to the grocery store. Yeah. You can't go anywhere where you could potentially introduce the virus. And that's the only way you'd be able to keep that, that component of it clean. And then every college football team would have to do that because if they're playing each other and interacting each other, with each other, you have to be ensured that none of them have it, right? right? No, absolutely. And so it's, it's nearly an impossible situation, and there's really no good public health way of ensuring that you kept it out. And all it takes is one person in that closed system and with a uh, 
infectivity rate of, you know, essentially three, one becomes three, three become nine, you know, nine, nine becomes 27 easily. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it just, it just is, it, you know, it doesn't take long for the whole thing to fall apart. No, absolutely. Yeah, that, I think nine that's becomes why, 27, 27 becomes 81 and boom, there's yeah. your roster. Yeah. yeah you're I done. Mean, it's, and, it's, I mean, in a and week. that's, and it just, it, yeah. in in a week or whatever. And, and I think that's why you saw the, the, they went ahead and canceled the Summer Olympics because, I mean, you know, people are going to be coming from all over the world. Right. And just and, importing the disease. You know, these athletes from all over the world, there's going to be different rates of disease coming from these different areas. And it, right. it, from a public health perspective, the right thing to do is just for everybody to wrap their head around it and say, okay. We're not going to have college football this year. We're probably not going to have professional football this year. You know, it's just uh, it's just going to be too early to let people out and let them around each other um, in order to make it happen. And I mean, really, who wants to watch a college football game where two teams are playing each other and there's nobody in the stands? I mean, it's not it's not necessarily about just the game. You know, it's the experience. It's the it's, it's the pa- it's, it's the pageantry, more, it's the tailgating, yeah, it's the it's, bands, it's, it's, it's all, all of it, the things. Know? Yeah, that's what that's what yeah. makes it. I mean, there's there's a reason. Look, there's a reason that you know. Just take the SEC for example. How how you know the SEC network sends a a, a studio crew to a different campus every week, whether it's LSU or Ole Miss or Mississippi State or whatever, and they get there hours earlier than the game, and they set up, and all the fans are there, and yep. that's that's all. That's what makes college football what it is. It's not just Hey, boy, I tell you what, that veer passing attack that, you know, Oregon State has is just. Yeah, it's more than that. And that's why I I just I don't know. I I, I know that I you there's a lot there's a lot of people out there that are pumping and and optimism. And, man, I I hope that they're right and we're all wrong. Here's one of the other questions that I have about that. I'm using football as a vehicle to get there. There is a concern among football people, among sports people, that there's going to be a second wave of this that comes sometime in the in the early, I guess, late summer, early fall. Is is that something you're anticipating as well, where there's a peak and then it kind of dies off and then it comes back a, a, again? It it depends on as a society how willing we are to see the long-term benefit of, you know, having uh, a social distancing, truly, you know, we have got to do this and stay indoors and stay away from each other, how long we're willing to do it. So if we, if we just give up and, you know, our president and our governor and our mayors uh, everywhere, not just in Mississippi, but everywhere say, all right, you know, we can't do this any longer, go out. Will we see a second wave? Yes, absolutely we will. Because we, we have not gotten to the place where we have developed enough herd immunity and the virus has not uh, been able to gain traction and spread. If we let people out too soon, then what we've done for the last two to three weeks has been in vain. And it, it's all going to occur anyway. And we, we could have just gotten it over with sooner. So, you know, um, we've started into this, and I think, you know, the prudent thing is if we're if we're meaningful about it, then we need to see it through. I think that the 
problem I see through all this is when I drive around my neighborhood and, you know, um, go for essentials to the grocery store or the pharmacy or whatever, I think a lot of people are just treating this like an extended spring break, you know. I mean, I see herds of kids roaming my neighborhood. I see families all getting together in, you know, front yards or, um, you know, ha still having, you know, get-togethers. And, and yeah, they say, oh, well, I'm staying six feet apart. Well, you're not because you don't realize you're touching the same spoon and the same doorknob. Everybody's got to use the bathroom. Your kids that are there touching each other, they're, you know, you – the virus spreads in ways that people don't understand in their normal lives. And so you, you really have to be serious about not doing these things. And I mean, the best case scenario uh, is people get serious and we, we do see it through into the summer and we get to a more comfortable place because everybody was serious and we say, okay, it's time. But I think a lot of people, not because they're um, misinformed, but because they just are having difficulty actually doing it. Because as human beings, we are, you know, social people are not really taking it to heart. And uh, if we kind of do it halfway, it's not going to work. Yeah. And I've seen, and, and, and Alan, I've seen uh, on, on my street, at least, there have, there's been a lot of kids running around. There's, you know, there's, I see a lot more people out walking, um, you know, for exercise and stuff like that too. But what I have seen that I thought was kind of cool was, um, some of our neighbors on our street, you know, we live on a pretty busy street, um, on, in front of my house and on the side and on the side street, uh, they have, they'll have their, um, their chairs set up at the end of their driveways and they're having beers and, you know, they're shouting at each other across the street, um, so it's it's it has been kind of creative how I've seen people try to socialize, um, and I haven't had the invitation to go over to, and I wouldn't accept it anyway, but to go over to other people's houses and you know be inside their house and touching stuff and because I'm, I guess I am hypersensitive to this, but I but I do realize that looking just around me that there are a lot of people that are that are not you know sensitive to it at all. Um, and look, it kind yeah. of feels like, you know, when you're in kindergarten or in first grade or second grade and, um, you know, the class gets in trouble and so they lose recess. And then, you know, there's like one or two kids that keep doing something stupid and then you the whole class misses recess again because, you know, one or two kids are being, you know, stupid. It kind of feels like that's what it kind of feels like is you know, I think a lot of folks yeah. are are being serious, but there are those people that are not, and they're going to cause us to lose recess or our privileges outside for a longer period of time because, because they're not doing right. And I'm going to, yeah, I think gonna, that's exactly right. I'm going to piggyback on the school thing. Um, cause one of, one of our, um, questions, and I think it was from Nathan, um, had asked since we were, we were talking about football in the fall and we were just talking about school. Do you, uh, do you realist, realistically, do you think we probably won't start back school in the fall? Like face, like every, all the kids in the classroom, correct? If we're not doing football I, and I all that stuff, we're probably not going. I to really don't think so. Okay. I I think that we need to have our school administrators be thinking, you know, how how are we gonna how are we gonna do school in the fall? Um, 
from distance. I mean, I, I think we probably need to be thinking that way and we need to be thinking, okay, we've got to, we got to see this into the winter of next year. Um, I really, and that's what my gut tells me now. I hope I'm wrong. You know, I really, really, really do because, uh, yeah. you know, nobody wants that to happen. Uh, but, but I think we need to be planning for that. You know, a lot of what we do at the hospital is not, is not necessarily uh, we don't do things based on the present activity we see we're doing things contingency planning based on the worst case scenario and i think that's what everybody needs to be doing is planning for you know what's that worst case scenario yeah yeah well i'm gonna pay bills in just a second i, I know there are people out there listening to this right now because i i i, I, I talk to these people daily who are saying okay i get it medically and and don't get me wrong i'm not disagreeing with you here alan i i, I catch myself agreeing with you as much as I, I want to disagree there are people that are going to say okay if you extrapolate that out that means that kids don't go to Ole miss in the fall kids don't go to mississippi state in the fall kids don't go to alabama auburn fill in your school here whatever oklahoma kansas whatever kids don't go to those those campuses these campuses, these these uh, these universities can't survive in that environment. The businesses in the towns that that uh, are connected to those, you know, businesses in Startville and Oxford and Fayetteville and Lawrence and wherever Norman, wherever they 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 can't make it. They just can't. They won't survive. At some point, do we just have to say, hey, we got to get back to life? And the people who are susceptible or the elderly, the older people are going to just have to to uh, to to stay home. I know people are saying that out loud. They're thinking that to themselves as they listen to, as they think of the thought of a fall semester with kids at home. What's your response to that? Uh, my response, I mean, I, I understand that. I mean, I, I totally understand the, uh, the other side of the not, you know, the non-medical non-public health side of the discussion about the economy. And, you know, I mean, I've got, friends just like everybody does it it's not you know unfortunate uh, that it, it's not directly affecting my family because i do have a healthcare job so i'm still working but I mean, we have friends that you know their whole entire income is totally dried up because that you know it's a commercial business or whatever so i get the economic argument about this and you know there's there's not a right or wrong answer, but I think people also have to wrap their head around this. Let's say we say, okay, you know, from a societal standpoint, we can't do this anymore. Our economy can't sustain. We got to get out and make money. And we just say, okay, you know, we're willing to take some deaths. Let's do it. Well, don't be prepared for your healthcare industry as you knew it pre COVID-19 to be able to care for you the way you're going to expect. So you're not going to get the same care for a heart attack or for a bad car wreck or, or, you know, your gallbladder taken out. And the reason is because when we open Pandora's box and allow all this to come out and we just don't care anymore until it burns out, the healthcare industry is going to be overwhelmed. I mean, you know, if you think about it, we operate, and I'm not talking about the hospital where I work, but all hospitals, 
operate daily at a near maximum capacity pre-COVID-19. And that's just with general illness in the community. It's just the baseline illness and the baseline elective things that we do for people to take care of them. And we're not going to be able to return to that and take care of a big bolus of sick patients for for a prolonged amount of time. It's just not going to be able to occur. And even if it does, even if we we did figure out a way to compensate, you know, you, you come into the hospital for your heart attack and guess what? You're going to catch it and, and you're going to catch it in the hospital mm. because we're still going to have a bunch of those people in the hospital and it's going to be really, really hard um, if we're, if everybody's back to baseline and getting hurt and, you know, getting drunk and falling and hitting their head and all these other things that happen that need to be cared for start to come back again the way they were before this. So, uh, you know, people just have to realize that if we make that decision, um, healthcare is still going to be affected and it's, it's going to be a riskier situation and, um, there's trade-offs no matter, there's not a right or wrong decision in any of this. I don't think, I mean, of course, if I had my druthers, the decision would be stay inside. Let's just lock everything down for, you know, the rest of the year and let's just get through it. But, you know, I'm looking at it from a, from a perspective that a lot of other people aren't looking at it from, um, but there's tra- there's going to be trade-offs either way. There's going to be a lot of dead grandparents and parents. Um, and there's going to be, uh, or the alternative is there's going to be a lot of bankrupt people that lose their house and, you know, don't have other options. And, I, you know, I'm not the one to say which one is right or wrong. Well, both are bad. But, you so know, it's, yeah. Yeah, both there's are bad. not a right or wrong. Right. Both are bad. So. My passion is healthcare, And, you know, I, I want to I make sure that we're able to, provide the best care for everybody at the time that they need it. And, you know, I just feel like in order to get through that, to get through this and be able to do that, we're going to have to be uh, more directive about um, getting through it. I mean, if you think about China, you know, China was able to effectively basically shut down. Yeah. Right. I mean, just shut the whole country down and it took them from, you know, it started circulating in China in November, right? And they're just now beginning to allow some intra-city transport. And, and they just the shut end their of March. They just shut their theaters down again. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So it's going to start. That's the end. That's five months. Yeah. It started circulating in the U.S. in late January, early February. So yeah, you're looking I mean, at. If we just follow the China model, we're looking at July before we start to say, okay, we're starting to let people move around. And then what happens is, and it's happening in, you know, Korea, South Korea a little bit, and it's going to start happening in China. You're going to see that spike start to go up. And when that spike starts to go up, we don't know if it's going to be blunted because there is some degree of herd immunity, Um, you know, Hopefully, at some point, we'll get a vaccine. So, right. you know, there probably are things that will happen societally that will change the trajectory where, you know, some of those curves may be blunted. But I still think that if you come out too soon, if you stop all this too soon, it's going to start to jump up. I mean, 
my wife and I were just talking last night about our family vacation, which we have scheduled in the first week in August. And, you know, we're going to cancel it because even if, even if we are moving around at that point, I still think it's not going to be a totally safe environment to be traveling in. You're going to put yourself and your family at excess risk, even if we've gotten to a, a more baseline level of activity. And I just don't think seeing the other side of it, seeing what it actually does to people and how bad it is, I don't want to even think about that risk, you know, right now. Right. Well, I mean, you look at like Disney just posted yesterday, closed until further notice. Um, yeah. You know, and I think they've been really responsible uh, on, on, on their actions and, you know, and I, and I, I know we did, uh, Neil, we need to pay bills. I'll just comment real quick and then we can pay bills. The, you look at like what India has done 1.3 billion people and they've shut everything down for, for 21 days at least. And, you know, I know that, you know, Americans look and say, well, we're not like, you know, we're not like India. We're not like China. Well, we are more like India than our India is more like us than, than China is. And they shut they shut everything down, um, and then you know if you kind of look at some of the countries in the in the EU, um, you know that are that are taking a little more draconian measures um, and and shutting society down, but they're also doing things for people like what you talked about. You know you don't you don't want people going bankrupt or losing their home. Well, they they put a moratorium on on mortgages and stuff, and I don't know what that would look like in the U.S. because um, that certainly you know would be truly unprecedented. Um, had never happened before here. And I'll be quiet, Neil, because I know you need to you need to pay a little well, bit. Well, a little breaking news here. Chuck Norris has this thing. If Chuck Norris oh can get it. Oh, my gosh. I can't wait for the memes. <laughs> I, mean, Isn't that the truth? I can't wait for the memes on that. If Chuck Norris yeah. can get it, we're all screwed. It's because <laughs> Chuck Norris I mean, doesn't get I mean, coronavirus. Coronavirus gets Chuck Norris. Yeah, just uh, that's unbelievable. Uh, all right, this podcast is also brought to you in part by the refrigeration company, TRC, owned and operated by Jeremy Watler. He's been in the refrigeration field for more than 20 years, including five years as a national service manager. At TRC, they understand that great service means being responsive. They're highly trained, responsible, dedicated staff, available 24-7 to ensure your complete satisfaction. They specialize in ammonia refrigeration, but they work on any other HFC, HCFC, or CO2 systems. TRC is building winning relationships with customers in baking, cold storage warehouses, ice production facilities, and facilities serving dairy, food, poultry, and catfish processing. They're based in Spanish Fort, Alabama, but they're also licensed in Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, and South Carolina as well. They can handle all of your company's refrigeration needs, including installation, fabrication, service, compressor rebuilds, ammonia detection, calibration, vibration analysis, and more. To learn more, call Jeremy Watler at 251-348-8533 or email him at jeremy at com. You can also follow them on Facebook or at their website, therefridgeco.com. Podcast also brought to you by Elite Dental Care with offices throughout West Tennessee in Germantown, Jackson, and Trenton. Elite Dental Care has five doctors with more than 75 years of combined experience and with their different areas of expertise, the doctors at Elite Dental Care offer convenience along with the latest in technology. In addition, Elite Dental Care is a family practice, so the entire family can be seen no matter the age or severity of the problems. Elite Dental Care focuses on staying up to date on all the latest technology, including intraoral cameras, digital x-rays and impressions, 3D x-rays and more. There are TVs and radios in every room, giving patients the comfort of home 
all while they receive the most modern technological treatment. They offer both conscious sedation and IV sedation for patients that are anxious or scared or for those that might not be fearful, but just have a lot of work to do and can't afford to take time off work for multiple visits. With sedation, Elite Dental Care is able to get much more work done in one visit, which ultimately saves the patient time and money. So if you're looking for a dentist in uh, West Tennessee or the Memphis area, call Dr. Mark Harper, Dr. Clint Buchanan, and Dr. Mike Farah at Elite Dental Care. You can reach them at EliteDentalCare.com or follow them on Facebook and or Instagram. Martin? Appreciate you, Neil. <clears throat> um, I know we're, we've been talking a lot about the, the medical side and, and then also the, the economic impact. Uh, if you guys will allow me, let me jump just a little bit onto the, we'll call it the quasi-political side. Um, we've got a question from Scott that's in Madison, and he asked um, if, so Dr. Jones, do you think that the Mississippi governor um, is doing enough with, with his proclamations? Um, and you may say I don't want to answer that question, <laughs> and that's fine. <laughs> I think that, you know, uh, I think that, that it's complicated. I think that, that he is, you know, in close contact with the state health officer and they're, they are devising a plan. Uh, my understanding, and I haven't, I haven't kept up with all, you know, I haven't listened to the news conferences and everything. So I've just read some blurbs and, you know, there's some degree of, uh, interpretation in the writer's eyes and that but my understanding of what their plan is is to uh try to look for kind of hotbeds of activities and do an epidemiologic uh deep dive into that air those areas to try to isolate and contain you know so a more targeted approach rather than a rather than a uh, shotgun approach right um so you know there's there's a little bit of a debate in the public health and medical community which one is better um, I don't, I don't know if there's, you know, a right or wrong answer to that either way. Um, I think that, you know, at some point uh, you reach a, you reach a point where you don't have a choice. I mean, you know, New York didn't have a choice. New Orleans didn't have a choice. Right. And, um, usually when you reach the point of no choice, it's, it's a reaction to a situation that has gotten out of control. So. Um, you know, the ideal scenario is we see we see our government officials, and I'm not just talking about the governor, I'm talking about local communities too, also, you know, be proactive. And I think there has some been some degree of that uh, all the way around from the state level, uh, you know, all the way down. So, um, you know, that's way ab above my pay grade. I mean, I've been pleased that there have been, there have been some, for sure. Um, should they be more strict? Um, I think we'll know uh, pretty soon yeah. um, what trajectory, you know, we're on an upward trajectory now and if that flattens out or not, I'm not sure. But I think the stepwise approach is not, you know, that we've seen so far of, you know, we're going to do this now and then a, a week later, it looks like things have gotten a little worse, we're going to do this. I mean, that's not an unreasonable approach, uh, but I also think it's not an unreasonable approach to just lock everything down early on. So, it's just two different ways of attacking the same enemy. Gotcha. Um, and I don't know if we know, because we've never really seen anything like this in our lifetime, I don't know if we know which one is the correct uh, methodology. 
Sure. And, you know, I know there was a lot of mayors across the state that went ahead and took, you know, some matters in their own hands and did some shelters in places. And then there's a lot of mayors that shut restaurants down for, you know, curbside only and um, or or delivery. Uh, and I know a, a few days ago there was there was some uh, um, not a misunderstanding, but there was some language that was, uh, I guess, a little vague and ambiguous and could be interpreted a couple of different ways on you know, with, um, with the governor's, you know, executive order was, was he overruling those towns saying, no, you can't shut your restaurants down for curbside only. You have to allow for dining. And I would think that, you know, I know that, that, that Tate and a lot of the Republicans run on a, on a ticket of, you know, Hey, less government intervention into people's daily lives is better. So, you know, I guess it's a two-sided sword, um, or to a double-sided blade being that, you know, if, if, if a business decides they're going to shut their doors to dine-in people and it's only going to be drive-through, then a, go- a, 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 a government official doesn't have the right to come in to the business and say, no, you have to have, you know, dining space as well um, that you can't do curbside. So I had, I read that too. And I was like, ah, oh, that's, I can see both ways, but it, it's overstepping either way, whether, you know, a, a government official, if we're going by, you know, our quote unquote American rights to, you know, operate as we please, as long as we're not doing harm to the public, which, you know, some might argue that having dining in is, you know, a moral or not having dine in options is a moral obligation to the public to do right by the public. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I'm, that, I'm getting a little. That gets a little bit out of my, you know, area of kind of expertise. And that yeah, you don't like have it's to more of that. a legal. Well, I'm just saying it seems like it's more of a legal question of, you know, do you have, the, you know, can you legally enforce this or that or the other? I don't know. I mean, you know, like I said, I mean, I think that that there's two different approaches, and um, I, I think that that they're trying to think through what's the best option both for the the state and the economy and from a public health perspective. And, you know, I think that uh, I've been pleased with some of the things that I've seen come down uh, from a state level. I've been pleased with some of the things I've seen at a local level. Um, you know, in the ideal case scenario, would we have just shut everything down? I mean, only time will, will really tell, um, you know, I mean, I think that's something that the history books will tell us. Hey, you made a mistake here. You made a mistake there. Right. You did this right or you did this wrong. I mean, yeah, we just we're kind of living through. View. Yeah, I mean, healthcare and government, government officials and everybody, we're kind of living through something we there's no playbook for. Yeah, you guys are you know, building we, we really don't, here. Yeah, we really don't know what we don't know, and that's the that's the hard thing about making decisions. And every decision is going to be criticized because of that. If it was the quote unquote right or wrong decision, um, so. You know, I, I don't think that – I mean, I certainly can't sit here and criticize our governor or the mayors for any of the decisions they've made. I think they're they're doing it with the best intent, with the best information that they have, um, you know, to try to fulfill their responsibility. And, you know, I, I think that they're thinking about, you know, things on a different level, obviously non-healthcare um, considerations than we are. So. Sure. Well, I mean, um, they're managing a crisis. I, and that's, so. and that's, 
Right, and that's why they're in the that's why they're in the job, the role that they're in, is because yeah, I wouldn't that's want what they're supposed to be thinking about. I wouldn't want to be there. I, I wouldn't. I don't. I don't envy any governor or you know or mayor at the moment. Um, where you know it's kind of like Katrina. Um, you know, it was you're everything's in chaos and and you're responsible for all the decisions you make or don't make. And I don't, I don't envy those guys. And I certainly, I certainly don't want to be them. I respect them, but, uh, but I don't want yeah. to be them. I, it's a difficult situation to be in. Yeah. I mean, that's why I say like, I think they're, I think they're trying to make the most informed decisions, uh, thinking about balancing all of the different considerations that they have to balance. And, um, like you said, I mean, it, it's tough, it's tough. And I don't, you know, there, you, no matter what you say or do, you're going to catch criticism from one side or the other. So uh, I think we have to all kind of try to, you know, just be supportive of each other through the process and, you know, be as, be as balanced and level-headed as we can. And, uh, and that's the only way, you know, as a society, we're going to get through it is respecting each other. At the end of the day, all this stuff is not about you as an individual. It's about everybody else. Right. And yep. so, if we as individuals think about everybody else rather than just ourselves, then we'll have a more holistic view of what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, I can I can completely get behind that. Um, the greater good, and I mean, and, and honestly, that's that's why we locked our house down because um, it's you know it's not it. We have we of course I have a very you know big reason to lock my house down, but it is it's not just about me. Um, I know we've, yeah. we've taken about an hour of your time and. I do. There are. Um, I've got two more quick questions. Neil, do you do you have uh, any that you want to? No, he's he's pretty much covered them. I mean, there's some questions that you know we haven't addressed specifically, but that he he's already answered. I mean, the answer to the should you should you open the neighborhood pool is no. The answer to should kids just be roaming the neighborhoods freely is is no. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. You know, I mean, the the truth is, it's as as a you know, my youngest is a 13 year old boy and. I will ask this, and and this is this is probably outside of your expertise. It's outside of mine. I am I am one of the things that I catch myself a little worried about. And, and, and look, it's everybody. It's not just you know, but with with my kids, I've got uh, you know I've got one that just wants to go back to college. Uh, if if what we're saying here is right, she's not going to get to do that this fall. I've got one that's about to start her senior year of high school. If we're right, she's not going to get to do that this fall. I've got one that's a. Uh, is uh, a seventh grader. I guess he'll be an eighth grader in the fall. And, you know, he's not getting to play the soccer that he normally plays. He's not getting to see yep. all of his friends. There's, I worry, I worry about young people uh, who, who are going to start developing some kind of depression, yep. some mental health stuff, and they don't necessarily have the communication tools to express it yet. Yep. Great question. Yeah. I think that's uh, I think that is spot on. I mean, I think, we're going to see that, you know, it's, and it's, you know, it's going to affect the young, it's going to affect the kids for sure. It's going to affect everybody. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's definitely a mental health component to this. that's already emerging. Um, I mean, it's very, very acute in the healthcare setting because of the concern about, you know, you know, I, I think a lot of healthcare people are, are not necessarily concerned about contracting it themselves, but they're more concerned about, I don't want to, you know, this is what I chose to do. So I'm good with it, but I don't want to bring it home to my family. They didn't, they didn't choose this. You know, I don't want to bring it to my 
my my friends in the neighborhood, you know, and uh, so there's a mental health component in the healthcare industry. And but I think you're right. I think we're going to look back on this in a couple of years, and they're going to be you know, new diagnoses associated specifically with this. And I think it's going to take a toll. And I think, you you know, the best thing we can do now is just, you know, be open about it and uh, encourage our kids and everybody to share their feelings about it and, you know, validate those feelings. And that's what I do with my kids. Like, I, you know, I, look, I totally get it. You want to be a kid. You want to go swimming with your friends. You want to roam around the neighborhood, you know, you want to go back and play on your soccer team. I, I want you to, and I understand how hard it is that you can't do that. Um, you know, I want to be able to go out to eat with my friends and, you know, go to a restaurant and hang out and do the things that you know, go to a football game, do the things that I like to do. I want to go watch you play soccer. Um, so it's hard on me too. And, you know, uh, but, but we're, we'll get through it. You know, we got to find our new normal for now. And, you know, at some point, just like everything that occurs in, in history that we look back on, the 1918 Spanish flu, the Great Depression, the World Wars, Vietnam, I mean, you know, there is life on the other side of it. Um, and it's not going to be necessarily what we knew before, but we'll get there. And, you know, uh, eventually we'll look back on this and we'll say, well, we learned something from it. It's hard to see that when you're in the middle of it, but I think it's a, it's a great point. I mean, yeah, there was the mental a, health aspect of this is just as devastating as the physical aspect of it. There was a video, I'll finish here. There was a video that I saw this morning that kind of brought that home for me. It was a, a Saudi doctor, I believe, who based in New York, and he came back to his uh, apartment. I guess the wife was shooting it with her phone, and, and they had a little boy. I don't know, he couldn't have been more than five years old. And of course, he was excited to see his dad, and and so he goes running to his dad, and his dad puts the arm out to kind of, hey, don't get up against me right now. I just got back from the hospital, yeah. and and the yeah. little bo the little boy, you can see his body language, you can see him from behind. His body language, of course, is very sad, and the father falls to his knees, breaks down, and it was that moment you realize, yeah. man, this is you know, it just it's uh, the toll of this on 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 everybody is is. Is like you said, and that's the good word, acute. It is so it is so personal for every person, and, and it's difficult for people to express. Well, hey, listen, we uh, can't thank you enough for your time, Alan. I know that uh, you more than an hour, and um, I have a feeling we will be uh, inviting you back on again pretty soon as this is the only story that seems like anybody can even think about that's out there. So, uh, again, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. Uh, always enjoy talking to you guys. Yeah, appreciate you, Alan. Thanks for your time, man, and your expertise. And, hell, thanks for what you're doing in fighting this battle. Yeah, well, you know, we're we're hanging in there, so just keep thinking about us. Uh, we'll get through it. We see light on the other side. We just got to keep moving towards it. Indeed, that's man. Uh, we'll support that's you. Alan Jones. Yeah, thank you very much. And for, for Martin Palomo, I'm Neil McCready. That does it for this edition of Mind on My Money podcast presented by Pinnacle Trust. Don't forget, pintrust.com, P-I-N-N-Trust.com. Tell them that you heard about Pinnacle Trust on this podcast or on the Oxford Exxon podcast. You'll get 10% off of your first year's fees. Until next time, take care out there. Thank you for listening to our show. If you haven't, please subscribe and give us a rating. Please also reach out to us with any questions at mommm at pinntrust.com. 
Thank you so much for listening. We look forward to the next episode.